Father, thank you for your love. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son. And Jesus came for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that was to sacrificially die for each one of us. I thank you that as believers, we are the church and we've gathered together this morning to worship you, to sing and to pray and to encourage and to lift our hands up and glorify you. I ask, Father God, that you would be honored and that we would be amazed at how great and mighty you are. I ask for those that are in the the downstairs for children's church, the adults that help, the children that attend, that you would stir hearts. Holy Spirit, fill each one of them and each one of us with the truth of your word, with the glory of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father God, for the time we have this morning together as the church. In his name, amen. The children can be dismissed. It's a glorious time to get together. We have quite a morning. There's, in reality, two sermons today. Um, I thought some of having two of them be an hour long, but I thought maybe I'd spare you. But we have two things to look at, and this is a part of our continuing series. We've been going through this series. We, we call it Living as the Church. And in this series, we've, we've defined the church. We've studied prayer, preaching, worship, fellowship, serving, stewardship, structure, and leadership. And this morning, we look at two things. We look at what we normally in our church call ordinances. These are two ordinances that the church has always practiced. Those ordinances are baptism and communion. There are some churches who use the term sacrament for these two. That that word sacrament, it it usually means a means of God's grace. And the belief is when a person performs a religious ritual, he or she receives a blessing from God, such as salvation. So, so grace comes through performing the ritual. An ordinance usually means a practice commanded by the Lord, and it is not a form of receiving God's grace. An ordinance is something done in obedience to God. So here in, in First Baptist, we, we use the term ordinance. And the reason for that distinction and the reason it's important for us as we look at the ordinance is that the Bible teaches that grace is given freely to those who understand or who are undeserving, excuse me, those who are undeserving of God's gifts. There is no ritual necessary for salvation. There's a clear statement of this in in Titus chapter 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness of the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ordinances. The the, the first one we're going to look at is baptism. 
Baptism comes from the Greek. There's a group of words, but the, the basic word is baptizo. And it literally means to immerse or submerge. Think of it this way. If you take a cup, you're done with your morning coffee or tea, and you're going to take that cup and you go over to the kitchen sink and you fill it with water to rinse it out. That's not baptism. That's being filled. If you take that same cup and you go to the sink and you turn it over and the water goes around it, that's not baptism. That's being covered. But if you take that same cup and you fill the sink with water and you push that cup down into the water so it's fully immersed, the cup is filled and covered completely. That's baptism. That's baptizo. Baptism is not something new to the church. Baptism didn't begin when the church began. The Jews had used baptism as a symbol of spiritual cleansing for a long time. Christian baptism became the public act of identifying with Jesus through faith. Baptism symbolizes a new life and identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Baptism is something that is commanded as well. It's commanded by Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Because humans are dead in their sins, they have no ability to be saved from God's justice and wrath. Just naturally, we, we don't have that ability. Only a perfect offering can satisfy the perfect requirements of God's law. This means the human practice of baptism alone, just, just humanly going through that ritual, it can't save. There's a problem with baptism that's been in the church, and that is that there are some Bible passages that appear, they, they seem to teach, that baptism does save. I, I thought about going through all of them, but we'd be here much too long. <laughs> so I, I chose one, but what, what, you, what you can do is you can go through each one of those that seem to say that baptism saves, and if you put it in the right context, if you study it fully, it, it, they don't. All these passages that seem to say that you're saved by baptism would contradict the many, many passages in Scripture that clearly show people are saved prior to being baptized, saved by grace. And there are even places that show that that, that people are saved without being baptized at all. One of the best examples for me that I always like is, is Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's two other men and one of those men makes a profession that Christ is the, is the Lord. Really, he's, he's making a profession of his, his trusting in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. The man was never baptized. But if Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise, the man was saved. Saved without being baptized. There's one passage that I wanted to look at because it covers some of where we're at this morning. And that, that passage is 1 Peter chapter 3.21. This often comes up in people's minds because at first glance, it seems to say something about baptism saving us. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage, in this verse, Peter does connect baptism with salvation, and so should we. The two cannot be separated. We need to connect them. It's how we connect them that's important. Peter makes the point that being immersed in water does nothing but wash away dirt from the body. Baptism represents what saves us, what saves us in this passage, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is connecting baptism with belief that saves. Calling out to God in repentance and belief is what he means by an appeal to God. So there's, there's something that happens. You, you repent. You, you agree with God that you're a sinner. You agree with, that you need Jesus. So that's the repentance part. And the belief part is he, he saves us by his work on the cross and his resurrection. And then you're baptized. That's important. In the first century... First century church, the idea that would be in people's minds is that a person would confess Christ as Savior and then be baptized as soon as possible. Belief, then baptism. Peter makes it clear that the ritual of baptism is not what saves, but the fact that we have, been placed, our, we have placed our faith in Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's what saves. Baptism, then is of great importance because it proclaims publicly what has occurred within the heart. So there's a heart change, and because of that heart change, the believer says, I want to proclaim it publicly. I want everybody to know that I am a part of the body of Christ, that I belong to Jesus. Baptism is an act of obedience. Jesus said, baptize them. So, so it's, it's a command. And that obedience isn't driven by just wanting to, to, to follow the law. It's driven by a desire to outwardly express what Jesus has done. To express that uh, as a believer, I have, I've become a partaker of God's divine promise in Jesus. That's key to being baptized. A person being baptized in reality, is proclaiming they have died with Christ and will live with Christ. The old sinful man has been crucified and the new man has been resurrected. That's huge. The first century believers would have understood this in a very different way than we do. They would understand that when you are baptized... You are publicly saying, I belong to that, that master. This was part of the culture. This idea of repentance, belief, and then baptism is clearly seen. And one of the passages that just thrills me, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is just so neat, and another one is because I have a similar story. This is the story of the eunuch and Philip. The eunuch is asking specific questions of, of Philip, uh, trying, to, try, trying to understand Old Testament passages of Scripture. And, and as they're on a chariot and they're, they're, they're riding, 
they're, they're passing through the territory, and, and, and the eunuch says to Philip, this is Acts 8, 33, or 34, the eunuch says to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So here's just a, this is extra, you don't have to pay for this. <laughs> Philip begins to tell the eunuch about Jesus and being saved by Jesus by using the Old Testament. Can you do that? It's a challenge. How would you lead somebody to Christ only using the Old Testament? Philip did it. The apostles did it. That's pretty cool. Let's go on. Tells them the good news about Jesus. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. There was belief, and then he was baptized. Now, I want to share a story. This is the other reason why this story of Philip and the eunuch is, is very meaningful to me, because I had a similar. It's a story from, from India. It was on one of my trips. And, and while I tell you this story, we're going to prepare for something really special. Haley and Rich are going to go get ready, because Haley Robbins is going to get baptized this morning in service. The other thing I like about this is Daddy's going to baptize her. Man, that is so awesome. Now, while on this short-term missions trip with this team of men, uh, another pastor friend of mine, his name is Jeff, Jeff and I took a group of men to a men's prison. We were ministering in this prison. Prisons in India are horrible. Their whole, their whole system is, is screwed up because you can go to prison for a crime and you go to prison... And you'll be in prison until you can prove that you're not guilty. Until you can say, here's the proof of my innocence. You could spend your days in in prison. Their system doesn't work very well. These prisons are really not very nice places either. It's not like they're filthy dirty. This one wasn't filthy dirty. But there's no beds there's, it's just, you just go in there and you go, these guys are, this is terrible way to treat people. So here we are, and we're in this prison, and we begin the ministry, and the ministry usually took, took a, a similar form. The group of men would share a testimony or two or three, and these guys would share what Jesus has done for them, and then there'd be a message, and most of the time that would be a, a, an evangelistic message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So here we are in the prison. We've done that. And while we're doing that, about 70 or 80 men have, have gathered together. They just, they just keep coming in closer. And out of that 70 or 80 men, there's six or seven, maybe eight, I can't exactly remember, men that came right down, right at our feet. That's a picture of them. Okay? It's not the greatest, but that's... That's what's going on there. They came close to us while we were speaking. The message was preached. 
And when we asked if anybody wanted to make a decision for Christ, these, these men right up in front, they raised their hands. They, you, you could tell that God was doing something. There's some expression going on. There's, there's, there's something happening. You know this is real. There was also a sense of hope and excitement that was, was just kind of permeating the whole prison. So this group of men, these, this small group of men, six to eight, they come to Christ. And most of them begin to, to just kind of, you know, wow, that's really cool. And they got up and they start to blend into the rest of the prison population, except for two. And these two men did not get up. They, they remained seated and they began to have a discussion with my friend Samrat. And Samrat is the Indian man that runs this ministry to the prison. He's an amazing young man. Young man, he's the same age as I am. <laughs> Ish. Yeah, so we're young, right? These two men refuse to get up and this discussion's going on. And pretty soon, it's getting, the nonverbals from it are telling us something's uncomfortable here. I don't understand Telugu. It is, it is such a strange language. I, I don't have any idea what they're talking about. And there's this banter going on and, and all this. And so Jeff and I, the two that were leading this group, as this discussion just seems to be getting more and more heated, we go, we need to get our men out of the prison. We don't want them involved in some kind of prison problem. So we're, we're starting to gather our men together and we're starting to come out and you know, head for the door is what I mean. And all of a sudden, Samrat does this. And what's going on? He's just, he's just exuding. He's just smiling and wow. What's going on, brother? So we wait. And he says, the two men accepted Jesus as their Savior. This is the real deal. And they refuse to leave. They refuse to get up. They do not want to go on until they're baptized. And this is what they said. This is, this is kind of a quote through Samrat. They were adamant about this. They had read the scriptures before coming to this meeting. They knew that they needed Jesus. They came to Christ, and because they had spent time in Scripture, they knew that when they came to Christ, they needed to be baptized. Right now, you baptize us. That's what they're saying. They wanted, in that system, to publicly proclaim they belonged to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean as much to us here as it does there, because in my experience in India, in particular, that event of baptism... When you identify with Jesus, that's when the persecution begins. That's intense. These guys are in a very public setting saying, I belong to Jesus. And that culture, they all got it. Now, much of that heated discussion wasn't really about whether they should be baptized or not. The discussion was how. How are we going to do this? Because there's no pool there's no bathtub. There's, there's no place that we can immerse these two, two, two guys. They aren't going anywhere until they get baptized. So how are we going to do this? So we made a decision. And we explained the decision. We, we, we did this through Samarat. We made the decision 
to pour water on them and kind of sprinkle it on them and, and pray for them. And we explained that God would honor that. And, and they accepted that. They, they agreed to do this as a public declaration of their belonging to Christ. So they made another public proclamation. They, they verbalized their faith in Christ. And we celebrated baptism with them with new brothers in Christ. This is fantastic. Now, the kids are coming in because we're going to watch Haley get baptized. In the front rows, they're all going, yay! This is a celebration because this young lady, I've talked with her enough times, she knows Jesus. So she is, she is making a public declaration of belonging to Christ. I'm going to turn this over to her, her papa. Papa Rich. Morning, FBC. Morning. How are y'all? <laughs> Good. Haley, can you tell us why you want to be baptized? I want to be baptized because I want Jesus to be in my life forever. Amen. Okay, are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. Haley, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. That is awesome. Thank you all for helping us celebrate. Make sure you celebrate with her some more, okay? Thank you all. That's baptism. I love to baptize people, and I love to see them make a public proclamation. I like to have the kids come up because I want that next generation to understand how important it is to be a part of Christ and to publicly be a part of Christ. Let's go on this morning. Because we have another ordinance to take care of to understand our role in the church. And that second ordinance is communion. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, the table. There's lots of ways we might say that. But communion... I'll use the term back and forth. Sometimes I may say communion. Sometimes I may say the Lord's Supper. Is that okay? Communion is meant to remind us of Christ's death and resurrection. That's that's what this is all about. It's, It's a time for us to do one other thing as well. And that is to look forward. Look forward to the time when He comes back for us. So we're here to celebrate. We're here to remember and to celebrate. We tend to get a little bit more calmed down with communion, which is appropriate, than with baptism. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us a record of the Passover supper that Jesus had with his disciples the night before Jesus was crucified. Thank you, Haley. They were celebrating the Passover meal. If you remember, the Passover meal was the most sacred of all the Jewish feasts, and it was a memorial of the final plague that God sent upon the Egyptians. And that final plague was that all of the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed that night. 
all the Israelites firstborn were spared. And they were spared because they had slain a lamb and the blood of that lamb was, was put on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. Another aspect that happened was that that slain lamb was roasted and eaten with unleavened bread. That was, a, that was symbolic of that, that process of being taken out of Egypt. They're moving forward out of the bondage of Egypt. So this, this Passover meal became the greatest festival of Judaism. So here's Jesus and his disciples... It's that last night, and that's what they're celebrating. And in that meal, Jesus took bread, and he thanked God. He broke that bread. He distributed it to his disciples. And while he did that, he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he establishes the remembrance part, and he also establishes the connection between the Passover lamb and himself. As the meal went on, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. They finished the meal by singing a hymn. Then they walked to the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And then the very next day, Jesus is crucified. He's crucified. He became what he spoke about the night before. He became the perfect lamb slain to save all men and women from their sins. He became the Passover lamb. In Paul's account of the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he makes a tremendous statement about communion. And he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. So what that means is every time we come to the table, every every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel. We proclaim it to ourselves, meaning to believers, to each other as believers. But we also proclaim it to any unbelievers who may be present in our gathering together. That's important. First of all, we need to be reminded. We need to remember well what Christ has done. So we we proclaim it to ourselves. We also have to realize that on any given occasion in the church gathered together like we are this morning. I'd like to think that all of you here this morning, you're all saved, you're all going to heaven. But the reality is that there, there's very possible people here this morning who do not know Jesus. And as God uses us in this community, I believe there's going to be more and more opportunities where we could go, you know, there's people coming who don't know Jesus. And that needs to be exciting. So when we come to the table, we're proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're also saying we are so excited about that because he's coming back. When Jesus shared the bread and the wine with his disciples, he was doing something else really important. 
He is establishing the new covenant. The new covenant. The old covenant was a sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system was no longer needed because Jesus was the Lamb of God who would fulfill all the requirements of God's justice. All of the animals that had been slain in the old covenant could not fully satisfy all of God's justice. Because Jesus was absolutely perfect, He fulfilled all the requirements for you and I. There's a key text then that goes with this concept of what Christ has done and the new covenant and, and what's happening when we remember at the table. And that key text is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Within that statement from Jeremiah, there are four promises that are important for us to to recognize and remember about the, the new covenant. So Jesus is saying, this is the blood, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. So here's four promises that are in that new covenant. Verse 34, the first promise, forgive sins. This is why Jesus called the cup the new covenant in my blood. The shed blood of Jesus is the basis of our forgiveness. His perfect blood had to be shed to pay for sins of all humanity. His blood had to be given. So the first promise is, the blood was given, your sins are forgiven. The second promise of the new covenant, I'm going to see it in verse 33. He will write, that may not be right, but anyway. How can that be? Anyway, never mind. The second promise is he will write the law on our hearts. The old covenant was written on stone. As we, as we know from Exodus, the stones could be broken, destroyed. The, the law could be broken. And the reality is the law never could justify or sanctify. It couldn't do it. The law was given as an instructor to us to teach us that we're sinners and we need a Savior. The new covenant is written in the believer's heart. It's inscribed on the heart of a believer. Because it's inscribed on the heart of a believer, it is our delight 
not only our duty to follow after God's commandments. The third promise from Jeremiah 31 is that all of the covenant people shall know God from the least to the great. Now, this, this is an interesting one because it, it, it gives us a, a contrast between Judaism and Christianity. The church, that's all of us who believe, we're the gathered people who personally know Jesus as Lord. Okay? We're covenant people because we believe in Jesus. New covenant people do not become new covenant people because they are born out of covenant people. Okay? So another way of saying that is just because your mom and dad were believers doesn't mean you are. This is a distinction between Judaism because as God's people in Judaism, if you were born of Jewish parentage, you automatically became a part of God's covenant people. That's Old Covenant. New Covenant says you become a covenant person by agreeing that you need a Savior, that you're a sinner, and that Jesus is the Savior. Individually. So we have these young people like this one that's scampering around, just love her to death. Woohoo! She's now a covenant believer. She's a part of the covenant of God. Why? Because she believes in Jesus. Not because she, she was born out of two great people who are also covenant people. The work has to be done in the heart. The fourth promise out of Jeremiah 31. I will be their God and they shall be my people. When our sins are forgiven and we know him personally, not not just about Jesus, but when we know Jesus, we become his people and he becomes our God. His infinite wisdom and unlimited power work for us. His greatness and and beauty are for our enjoyment. And as His people, we are satisfied with Him. We're satisfied with God. And He is satisfied with His people. He loves you if you're a believer. He loves you. The New Testament, I think, is very clear. It it makes a clear statement about baptism. It makes a clear statement about communion. One of the other things that I think it makes very clear is that there's no statement in the New Testament about the frequency that we're to come to the table. There's no passage that says, you will do this. This is also a distinction from Judaism because the Jews were told, you will do this, meaning Passover. You will, you will, form, you will, you will do this Passover meal and the celebration of Passover on a certain day at a certain time perpetually. That was the command. That's not something that you find with the new covenant. So... 
each church, each, each local group of believers has some freedom in that frequency. There's, there's, no, there's no set way of doing it. There's some who come to the table weekly, and that's great. There's others who do it quarterly. We, at First Baptist, we, we tend to do it the first Sunday of each month. There's a few times I've thrown some, some curves at you, and we've done it twice in one month. <gasps> what I believe is, is a part of the church in practice is that communion should be taken frequency-wise in relationship to the ministry of the Word. What's God doing with us in the Word? How does the Word direct us to a place where we need to do this two weeks in a row? What would happen here if I went, you know, we're going to do it three weeks in a row? What would drive that? It would drive where Zach and I and the elders believe that we're going in Scripture. It's, It's motivated by something. I also feel that it's important for the church to not cause communion to be so so um, common, so regular, that the deep value of this remembrance is reduced to a callous religious ritual. I think that's one of the worst things we can do about communion. It's just communion. And we lower it to a ritual. That's not what it is. It's a remembrance of the greatest thing that has ever occurred to the human race. As we partake of communion, we are remembering what Jesus did. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24, we hear it often. When he had given the thanks, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remembrance, then, is important. Remembering means to call to mind Jesus. To to remember his life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his promise to return for our eternal salvation. As we prepare this morning to take communion, there's one other thing that we need to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and that is a warning that Paul gives. Beginning in verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
Paul's exhortation is that we do not take the Lord's Supper lightly. You know, I, I just get a thrill out of doing baptism the way, way we do. And everybody's hooting and hollering and raising their hands. And, you know, I was kind of hoping the kids would dance. But and sometimes we got the band going after it. That's okay. That's good. When we come to the table, we need to say, you know, where we're going to focus on really means something. This is a remembrance of the very most important thing that God has ever done with the human race. It's vital. This is one of the most precious gifts that Christ has given to the church. So I want us to come to the table this morning. And I want us to do something that one of the most gracious, lovely ladies in our fellowship reminded me of. One, one day I was sitting in my office and Marge Porter came and knocked on my door and wanted to talk. And She's so gracious. She said, Pastor, there's, there's something that we're not doing that we should do when we're taking communion. And what's happened is that because of COVID, we've changed how we do communion. And in doing that, we, we, we've kind of missed something that's related to the seriousness and, and the sobriety that we need to approach communion with. We need to take time and and make things right with God. Paul says, let a person examine himself. Okay? So before we take of communion, I'd like for us to do that. I'd like for us to take a moment and and make certain that our hearts are are bared before God, that, that we're right with Him. As, as best we can do. We need to do this. What does that mean? We need to confess our sins to him. That's key. That's a key part of being a believer. Confess our sins. So, so we quiet the things down in our minds and we stay focused on him. We confess our sins. We forgive those who have offended us. Because God forgave us. We deal with our stuff before we take communion. And then we'll share. So as Nicole plays, let's take a moment or two and make things right between us and God.
Father, we come to you with open hearts. We come to you as the body of Christ. We thank you for what you've done through your Son. And we also come and we confess that we struggle with sin. We confess those sins to you. And we also come to you and we we want you to recognize in our hearts that we forgive others. We will not use things against others. We confess that we very often leave our master behind in our daily lives. Father, thank you that as we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us. What a blessing to know. What an honor. What a great thing to know that Jesus is our advocate. Thank you, Father God. Find in us clean hearts as we come and remember the greatest event in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you, Father. Amen. It was Passover meal. What a wonderful time. Wonderful because Jesus was making it real. And that evening, when he had given thanks, he took bread and he broke that bread and he distributed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. thank you that the Son of God your Son the Son of God was willing to come and suffer in our place and he was willing to go through the humiliation the pain the intense suffering of crucifixion for each one of us Jesus thank you for your body. Thank you, Father God, for your plan and your purpose through your Son. That same evening, as we read earlier, as we studied this morning, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. It's all about the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for the blood. Thank you that the blood that was spilt by our Savior was perfect. 
It was truly perfect in such a way that it truly saves those who believe. Jesus, thank you. And from your body, the blood of the new covenant poured forth. Thank you, Father, for the blood of the new covenant. And thank you that we can call you God and you can call us your people. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God.